you know, ideally you want to be able to drill two miles horizontally. Like if you have an 80 acre parcel that situates itself two miles long, yeah. you can drill that. But that's not going to be the most efficient or effective thing to do economically or from a resource recovery standpoint. What you really need and what we figured out, and you know, we can talk about W3, but what the industry has figured out is that you really need big blocks so that you can drill multiple wells at the same time. And you can kind of go and sort of mow the lawn, so to speak. You drill one horizontal well and then you drill another one right next to it and then you drill 40 more right next to that one. Yep. And you you complete them all, a lot of them at the same time. Because you know when you drill one well by itself, that one well will affect the three or four, eight drilling locations that are around it. And so you have to be conscious you know, technically with respect to how you complete that one well right. in order to make sure that you're not diminishing the value of the rest of them. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks so much for joining me on the Fort today. I have a great friend of mine, Cody Campbell, with me today. He's the co-CEO of Double Eagle Energy here in Fort Worth, Texas. We have a great conversation today. Uh, we start with the early days of building Double Eagle and how Cody built it with his partner, John. We talk a lot about the state of the oil and gas industry and the opportunities and the challenges ahead. We talk about what things might look like in the industry if there's an administrative change in Washington, what it was like to get their first institutional partner, Apollo, and a cool story about how that came to be, and a whole lot more. Cody's a leader in the oil and gas industry, and I learned a ton in this episode, so enjoy. Cody, welcome to the show. Man, thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming over today. It's my first podcast I've ever done, so we'll see if I do a good job or not. I think you'll kill it. Yeah, I hope so. Let's just start off with a little bit about you growing up and, and what brought you to where you are today. Yeah, I grew up in the Texas Panhandle in Canyon, Texas. My business partner, John Sellers, and I grew up together there. You know, John moved to town when we, when we were about 12, and we've been good friends ever since. So that's a town of like 10,000 people. Um, it's a great place to grow up you know, good family. And, um, you know, I think it gave us both a good sort of base to start from, yep. you know, kind of instilled some good values in us and work ethic, you know, gave us some grit. So very thankful to have grown up in a place like that. And then uh, went to Texas Tech after high school and played football at Tech, uh, majored in finance and economics. And while we were at Tech, John, so John went to Tech as well. He also played football there. Um, and while we were at Tech, we started a little real estate business together. And we had a third partner um, who, was, who was with us in that business. And we started out just developing raw land into lots, residential lots for builders and selling those lots off. And so we had no idea what we were doing, of course, um, as like 20 or 21-year-old kids you know, going to school, playing football, and then also being real estate developers. So those were interesting times that we learned a lot, kind of learned how to be entrepreneurs. And I think it set some of the groundwork for what we've done since. After college sort of ended, um, I had an opportunity to go play in the NFL. And so when I went to do that, I, I went to Indianapolis, played for the Colts. When I went to do that, John and the third partner that we had bought me out. Mm -hmm. And I think it was for the handsome sum of like $15,000 they <laughs> bought me out of the business. Um, there wasn't much there that had a lot of value at that point. But John carried on with that real estate business after I was gone. And I went to Indy and um, I was not drafted, but I got a contract like right after the draft and um, went up there and made the team. And then I was there on the squad for like 19 months. I ended up tearing my pack and uh, having to get surgery to have it repaired. And that sort of, you know, made it, it, it I was an offensive lineman and a pec injury is a pretty bad thing because you kind of have to be able to uh, push people around yeah. and, um, you know, not having a good pec sort of limits your ability to do that. So ended up uh, getting cut by the Colts. I met my would-be wife when I was at Tech and she and I continued to date the entire time I was at Tech. Got engaged uh, while I was up in Indianapolis. She was finishing up school back in Lubbock. 
And um, I called her the morning that the Colts cut me. And I said, well, the Colts cut me. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen from here. Maybe another team will pick me up, but I don't know for sure. So I don't exactly know how to make a living, but um, I'm coming back to Texas and I'll see you in a day or two. And she said, well, I hope you get something figured out because I'm picking out my wedding dress right now. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, but but things worked out pretty well. Um, kind of backing up while I was in Indy, I you know made some friends up there and got kind of put together a couple of real estate deals with uh, football player, other football players as sort of investors. And I met some real estate developers while I was up there as well. And um, one guy that I did a couple of deals with while I was still playing um, was a guy named Paul Kite. And I went to work for Paul right after the Colts cut me. So within, you know, he, he kind of, he, he texted me, you know, when he heard I got cut, he said, Hey, come by and see me, you know? And so I went by to see him the next day and he offered me a job. So, I um, mean, what I, I was for him was a developer. Basically I would go out and, you know, kind of help put together projects and find real estate projects. And he had just taken a company, a REIT Public, and was flying pretty high, and he had a lot of projects going. And so working for him was an incredible experience. I mean, I, I got to see really cool stuff all over the country. I learned how, like, big deals are done. He had some very, very smart people working for him, a really smart attorney that was in-house that I learned a lot, you know, about, you know, documenting transactions and how things should be done. And he had a smart CFO. And so getting that experience through from him was awesome, you know? Yeah. So that was 2006. I think you're a little bit too young to have been working during that time, but yeah. real estate was like on fire. Unbelievable at that time. I mean, it was just financing was ridiculous. Zero down. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and we were doing mostly shopping centers all over the country, all over the country, you know, and those were super easy to do because the retailers were doing really well and they were just looking to get the next spot and next spot. So we worked, you know, I had projects going for him in Georgia. We had some in the Midwest, in Florida. I started getting a lot of stuff going in Texas and back here. And so after, you know, maybe a year or less of working for him in Indianapolis, he um, asked me if I wanted to move to Dallas to focus on the projects we had in Texas. And that worked out great. It kind of coincided with about the time that we were getting married, Tara and I. And so... Um, Moved back to Dallas, got married, and um, was working for him down here and had a bunch of stuff going on. Yeah. And they was going very, very well. We got a bunch of new projects going. Um, got some stuff going in Oklahoma. I got, you know, I mean, we were looking at stuff all over the country. Yeah. And then 2008 happened. And it went from like, you know, I'm doing all these cool deals, flying over the country in private planes and, you know, big stuff to like, the guy that mows the grass on one of our properties hadn't been paid. You know, we need to go deal with him. Like architects about to put a lien on us, you know, banks foreclosing. I got to deal with my, my job was miserable. I mean, it was, um, and I, you know, I would say that, you know, all the things that I learned from, from that experience prior to that, you know, getting deals done pales in comparison to the amount I learned while going through the financial crisis. It was very, very educational because you start to understand, you know, when you negotiate these contracts on these deals, whatever kind of deal it is, you're sort of negotiating in a lot of the negotiation is based on thinking about what can go wrong. Right. And until you actually see and practice how things can go wrong, you don't fully appreciate the importance of those provisions and contracts and thinking about those types of situations as you step into deals. Yep. And so now, you know, because of all that, I had I have a pretty good understanding of the downside, right? Oh. And so um, that's been just a, a massively beneficial thing that we experienced. So John was having similar experiences in his real estate business um, back in Lubbock that he was still running. And you all stayed in touch. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've been, you know, yeah. we're, you know, very close friends. And, you know, during the time I was in India and when I was in Dallas, we talked on the phone regularly and got together regularly. Tara and I would go back to Lubbock and... Uh, go to football games with he and his wife Tracy and stay with them and you know hang out. I mean we're we're close friends and yep. and we'd always talked about doing something together again and wanted to and so we were both at the point where like we needed to make money. Yeah. I mean it wasn't like you know hey we have this big idea we want to go out and start this big business together. It was like man we need to pay the mortgage <laughs> next yeah. month. I mean that it was really it was that real and we weren't the only ones that are in that. But a lot of people are in that position but 
necessity is sort of the mother of invention, you yeah. know, and you get backed in a corner and you just got to figure something out. And so um, we had a lot of friends from college that were in the oil and gas business. And what we kind of observed is that fundamentally oil and gas business is the real estate business, right? It's, yeah. it's you're going out just like you do in real estate development. You go out, you buy a piece of property and you develop it. In one case, you're building a building. In the oil and gas case, you're drilling wells and you're producing oil and gas. And so what we thought that we kind of had an understanding of, even though we didn't understand the the technical aspects of the oil and gas business, we did have an understanding of real estate and we knew how to do deals. Yeah. And so we knew that there was a demand for oil and gas real estate leases in certain places. And you know, if we could figure out where those places are and where people want to buy, then we might be able to go out and put something together. Put something together. And so we just kind of started doing it on the side and we went out to Louisiana and um, optioned a few leases. And, you know, we had to, we borrowed some money from John's brother to option a lease, <laughs> or a couple of them and borrowed some money from some other people. It was very risky because obviously if we weren't able to do something with those leases, we were going to lose our option money. And I mean, it was basically all we had. I mean, it is an option of a lease. It's just like an option of a property. You just pay a, a little down payment. Yep. And, you know, some cases it might be, 20 grand, 50 grand or whatever, Yep. you have a, a period of time where, you know, to pay for the lease in full. Got it. So that's what we did. We went out and optioned some leases and uh, with no real understanding of what the end market might look like, but just knowing that, you know, we had seen in the courthouse that people were taking leases in this area. We knew by talking to people that, you know, certain companies were looking at buying in certain areas in, the, in Louisiana. And so um, we went out and did it and we got the, you know, we, we bought the, we put the leases under option and we kind of put them together and then we were able to sell some of those leases. And the first batch that we did, we, it wasn't super profitable, but it sort of proved the model to us, I guess, that yeah. we can actually sell these things. We learned a lot from it. And then, you know, over time, we just started trying to find little deals here and there and we caught a little bit of momentum and figured things out along the way. We got pretty good at, at figuring out the title side of things. And, um, you know, I, I personally got pretty interested in understanding how one guest title works and, you know, started going in there and looking at things at the courthouse and doing research and finding things. And John is really, really good at relationships with people and making deals with people. And, um, his family also had, you know, quite a few relationships there in the cattle business and had relationships with landowners. And so, you know, that opened the door for us with a lot of people. We started working a lot in South Texas when the Eagleford came up. We were some of the first ones down there kind of putting acreage positions together. And we ended up um, buying a lot of leases. And, you know, as we made money, we had more money to do more deals. There were numerous times where we bet it all. Yep. I mean, I can remember the first time that we had made, we had accumulated a million dollars. Yep. And growing up the way I grew up, to me, that was just a staggering amount of money. And there was a big part of me was like, okay, I'm good. Yeah. You know, like, let's just kind of, this one guess thing was cool. Let's just kind of take chips on the table, off the table. Maybe I'll go back to real estate and, you know, figure that out. John calls me one day because he was still living in Lubbock and I was in Dallas. He called me one day. He's like, all right, man, we got, I got a deal. It's a million bucks. It's <laughs> like, you're out of your freaking mind. Um, but anyway, like that was one example. We bought the lease. All of the money that we had was in the lease. If we didn't sell it, we were, again, not going to be able to pay our mortgage. But we got it sold and made money on it and went on to the next one. And there are several times where we, fully doubled down and had everything that we had on the line on the line. There's a couple questions I want to ask before we get into oil and gas, but to keep going on this conversation, when you'd get a lease, like how long did you anticipate it would take to basically sell it? Like, were you waiting weeks, months, years? Cause you have a what, a three year lease, five year lease. Right. Well, you know, in most cases we were trying to sell it within a few weeks and right. we, we would, we don't see it so much anymore because the whole oil and gas and land grab thing is kind of, a thing in the past, but at the time, during those few years, and what year is this? this what is what year did Louisiana start? Two thousand nine. Okay, and you know, and when these land grabs are going on, things move extremely fast. Yep. And so, if you buy a lease and you don't have somebody kind of saying they want to buy it from you within a few weeks, you probably bought the wrong lease. Right. And so we were able to turn them pretty fast for the most part. So that went really well, and you know, we accumulated some money and. We learned more and more about the business. We really developed the way that we do things. We got a lot better at figuring out how to buy land, how to do title, how to negotiate leases, how to, you know, we've really figured some things out there. And I think that one advantage that we've had, it was a disadvantage at first, 
we didn't have any experience. Yeah. We, we basically knew nothing about oil and gas, but we had to figure it out ourselves. And as we worked through figuring it out, we kind of made our own judgments and with respect to what works and what doesn't, how things should be done. We didn't have any kind of preconceived ideas that we learned it by working at another company or whatever. Yep. And so I think by virtue of that, we have kind of found some better ways of doing things yep. over time. And so that that has really benefited us. But after we sort of flipped leases for a while, we started participating as a non-op owner in some wells and, um, you know, kind of went back to our West Texas roots and our relationships there and started participating in some wells in West Texas which at the time were mostly vertical wells and they were kind of just well, low risk type things that yeah. we were going to participate in and um, learned about more about the production and operations side of things through that and, you know, what it looks like to participate in wells. You know, over time, that kind of became the transition of our business from just lease flippers into actually like meaningful long-term participants in the industry. When did y'all like formalize this is what we are going to now do full-time and named it Double Eagle? Was that after you'd started flipping leases <clears throat> or before? Well, we named it Double Eagle, I think, in 2009 or yeah. so around there. But I don't know that, I don't know the point at which I was like, okay, this is going to be a big business or whatever. Yeah. You know, but it, it really has been just one little deal at a time. It's been one step at a time. It hasn't been, there's never been this like grand vision. It's yeah. just been like every day we've tried to make good decisions and do the right thing that day. You know, okay, we can make a little bit of money doing this or we can make a little bit of money doing that or we can move to the next month doing this, you know, and so it hasn't ever been like we have this big company we want to start. Right. You know, I think that's a mistake some people make is like, you know, they want to kind of play office, you know, they want to get all this big setup going and all that. I mean, we kind of took pride in the fact that we didn't have an office and that we were nimble and we could go out and, you know, when we were working in South Texas, John and I rented this field office um, outside of Crystal City. It was a former Texaco field office that had been converted into a hunting lodge. And we slept there at night, and then um, we would go out during the day and go to the courthouse or talk to owners or whatever. We would come back after um, being there all night, and there would just be dead bugs, like, all over the floor. <laughs> and so I was like, one night, we, we went into town to uh, uh, Walmart, and I said, dude, we got to get, like, a bug bomb or something in this place. And I said, oh. <laughs> So I, we were gone one day, and I set off the bug bomb, and we walked back in that night, and when we walked in— you could not step anywhere on the floor. Like the bugs just covered the whole thing. We had to scoot our beds out from the wall so they wouldn't crawl on us at night. Oh my gosh. This is in Crystal City? In Crystal City. The guy that leased the place to us, when he leased it to us, he said, um, you guys travel with guns, right? And um, I said, well, no, you know, we don't have anything with us. He said, well, I need to give you a couple. Uh, <laughs> because the illegal immigrants would like travel across the land and would potentially break into the to the lodge at night yeah, um, and uh, just to get water and stuff. Yep. And he said, you know, they'll probably leave you alone. In fact, you might just want to leave the door unlocked because all they want is water. But, yeah. you know, if one of them starts messing with you, you might also feel more comfortable if you had a gun. <laughs> so anyway, that was those were the beginnings of Double Eagle, right? And so it. it wasn't like a big enterprise or whatever. It was just John and me. And then pretty quickly thereafter, Blake Carpenter came on with us. And um, then, you know, as things grew and especially as we started to do more participating in wells, buying minerals, you know, we had more permanence to what we were doing. We had to add more staff and, you know, it just kind of grew from there. So you kind of go through like the friends and family stage, you start growing the business. And then what was it? 2000? When did you partner with Apollo for the first time? And like, how did that partnership come about? You know, I think that we first partnered with them in 2013. So Apollo's natural resources group used to be run by a guy named Greg Beard, um, who's a great guy. And uh, we met Greg through Hollis Sullivan, who's a Fort Worth guy. We met Greg in probably 2011, mm -hmm. and uh, we're just friends with him. And Hollis and Greg sat on a board together of a company that was here in Fort Worth. You know, we just liked each other and always kind of caught up. And John actually called Greg one day because he needed a contact for someone at DP Energy and at the time Apollo owned DP. And so Greg said, hey, you guys, you know, got anything interesting, any ideas or whatever? John said, well, maybe. He said, well, I'm going to be in Houston in a couple of weeks. We ought to just get together and talk about it. So we had this idea in Oklahoma, in Southern Oklahoma, and we put together like a three or four page PowerPoint on our idea, um, which was essentially a, to put to get to leverage force pooling in Oklahoma and uh, participate in, in non-op wells up there or participate as a non-op in wells up there. 
And so, you know, it's kind of funny as John and I rode up the elevator uh, to present this thing to Greg, he said to me on a scale one to 10, how much of a waste of time do you think this meeting is? And I said, I don't know, a 12th. And uh, we thought there's, you know, this is dumb. I mean, there's no way this is going to lead to anything. So anyway, presenting this deal, it was very simple. I mean, we had no model. We, had, we just were like, here's our idea. We think we can do this. So presented it to him like 30 minutes. He said, all right, let's do it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> How much money do you think you can deploy? And so, um, you know, we did it. Um, and we, we formed a new little partnership, separate partnership with them. Um, we kept all of our stuff that we were doing in West Texas and South Texas and the stuff that we were doing elsewhere. But we had a little AMI with them in Oklahoma and we started putting this position together and we sort of um, brought together a staff to, to run that company independently of our other stuff. And, you know, it went well. I mean, it went really well. And we were very early in the scoop stack play. We put together aces. We, a, a guy came in to work with his name, Garrett Martin, who had met through John's cousin. Um, he's a young, very, very smart, uh, one of the smartest guys I've been around, engineer. And he sort of helped us start, you know, working more on the technical side, making sure that we were in the right places. And we got in the right spots. We bought in the right areas and that, that uh, deal went great started it in 2013 and um, sold it in November of 2014 for 250 million. Wow. How much did you raise from them? Did you um, even know how much you were asking for? Well, I think the original commitment was 150 million. Yeah. We ended up deploying like 65 or something. So what was the elevator ride down the building like after leaving? He's like, well, all right, I guess we're going to do this, you know? And, you know, the initial deal with them was it, there was a, a lot of learning that was involved. Yeah. With, and, Greg liked us and everything, but the guys that worked for Greg didn't really, they were thought we were crazy and we didn't fit the mold of like who they typically back and they didn't trust us very much. Mm -hmm. But over time, it, you know, we sort of walked them, you know, we, they, we got them to understand the way we think about things and that trust was developed. I mean, when it, the first, you know, few months, we could not buy a single acre without getting their explicit approval for the purchase of that acre. Yeah. We had to walk them through all the economics that, technical aspects of it. I mean, it, it was, um, there's a lot of scrutiny, yep. which I think helped us to sort of mature the business and it gave us some discipline, yep. which was good. I think that if there had been more trust really, it probably could have been a bit much bigger deal because yep. we would have been able to buy more aggressively. And it turns out we were right, you know, but they didn't know we were right. You know, it was an unproven idea. Nobody knew what the scoop was at that time. So, you know, I understand, you know, where they were coming from, but it worked out. And, you know, as much as anything, it started to develop that track record with institutional investors. And so, you know, that's a big deal if you want to get more money from institutions or any money from them. It's just if you have a track record and walking into one of those places and, and getting the money where you've never done a deal before, you've never proven yourself is very, very difficult. And so the fact that we had that relationship with Greg and he was willing to believe in us was a really big deal. So from the time that meeting ended, how long until y'all were funded and off the races, like weeks or months or? A few weeks. Okay. Yeah. So you put together the plan to go into the scoop and basically y'all were buying leases. And then because of the force pool in Oklahoma, if Continental went to drill well, you would get to participate in their well, basically. Right. Yep. Along that journey, you got to work with Aubrey McClendon mm -hmm. quite a bit, who was obviously an icon and a legend. Can you just speak to maybe what it was like to work with him and what you learned working with him? Sure. So we sold that Oklahoma business to Aubrey. And then we also sold and put together a lot of acreage and sold to him in the Permian as well. And so we did a lot of business with him and got to know him really well. You know, he's one of the most fascinating people I've ever been around. I really liked him. Yeah. I really respected him. He was a just an incredible salesman. I mean, I've never... Uh, been around a, a guy that could sell something like he could sell it. He could convince you of things that were just unbelievable. You know, he, he, just sitting in a meeting, the force of his personality was just like nothing I've ever been around. I mean, yeah. he's just incredible. He also worked 20 hours a day, probably. Wow. He had in his office, he had like a little side room with a cot in it. And he would go in there, like take little naps or whatever. And just like keep working. You get emails from him at two in the morning. He kind of expected you to respond to. Yeah. <laughs> And just an incredible guy. And he did so much. And he was really a pioneer in our business. You know, he he was able to convince people to put money behind what at the time was very proven, uh, unproven, you know, just the shale development. And 
you know, that money, a lot of people lost a lot of it, but that investment sort of seeded the technological advances that have occurred in our industry that have paved the way for us to do what we've done now. And so, you know, it's been impactful for people in the industry. It's It's been great and a lot of jobs have been created, but it's also been great for the country. But, you know, he's vilified often. Um, he was just ahead of his time. Yep. I mean, he was just, and that he was a visionary. He was, you know, 10 steps ahead. And honestly, in many ways, was a victim of his own success. Yeah. I mean, he, if gas, natural gas prices had stayed at 10 or $11, he would have done incredibly well yeah. in Chesapeake. But because he discovered so much gas and produced so much gas, crushed the market. Yep. He's a sad story, yep. but John and I learned a lot from him and definitely somebody I'll never forget and somebody I always have a lot of respect and appreciation for. That's awesome. So you sell, we'll call it Double Eagle One to Aubrey, and then you take a few weeks to take a deep breath and then you get going on Double Eagle Two, which was, was that, is it fair to say a similar strategy just in the Permian Basin? Well, first, I wouldn't say we even took a few weeks. We, <laughs> we took a few, maybe hours, yeah. I don't know, but we kept going. And so we still parallel to Double Eagle One, which is the Apollo Partnership. We had all the things we were doing in the Permian and South Tech, other places. And um, Permian had gotten pretty big for us. And Apollo had talked to us for a long time. Hey, we want to get into your Permian business. We like the Permian. So finally, we said, okay, you know, Double Eagle Two with Apollo, we will bring you guys into the Permian. So it was Midland Basin focused. Initially, it was non-op focused. So we were going to sort of replicate what we'd done in Oklahoma and take it to the Midland Basin. We started putting together acreage. It was scattered non-op a lot to start with. And then pretty quick into that iteration of the business, we started realizing that we probably needed to be an operator. Yep. And so we started working on putting an, an operating team together. Why did you think you had to be an operator? Um, just the nature of the way things are in Texas, it's a little bit difficult to generate non-op exposure. And so if we were going to, we sort of had to create our own, our own drilling. And, you know, a lot of the leases we were buying, we we're going to have to drill ourselves because there was no way to get them in a non-op. And so uh, we just felt like we could further leverage what we were doing by becoming an operator. And so we did that, found the right people. It was good timing. Athlon Energy, which was a Fort Worth company, Midland Basin operator, Apollo backed, had just sold. And so there were some of those folks that were available, really talented people. We were able to pick some of those guys up and, you know, added some additional technical staff, just built a solid team. Yep. And, um, you know, started pretty quickly doing fairly well. Uh, operating wise, we weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. We weren't doing any exploration. Uh, we weren't trying to pave any new ground. Technically, we were just sort of trying to replicate what other people around us were doing. And so we've built on that base and moved forward. But really, you know, the operating success is largely due just to the good people that we've gotten. Yep. How, how long did Double Eagle 2, what was the start to finish there? So we started it in November of 2014 and built it up, got the acreage position put together well enough to where it could be largely drilled within probably a year. Yep. And we started drilling some wells. We, I think we were running two rigs by kind of beginning of 2017. Mm -hmm. And then we got approached by Parsley Energy. Um, we we had by that point accumulated about 70,000 acres. Golly. And we got approached by Parsley Energy to, um, uh, they said they were interested in buying us. Yep. And we had a pretty long relationship with Parsley. And so we just sort of negotiated a bilateral kind of deal and um, sold the business to those guys in April. We closed the deal in April of 2017. So it was about two and a half years that that one took. And you had said that in Oklahoma, when you first started with Apollo, you had to get like every lease approved and you had yeah. to, by the time you're now in 2014 to 17 and things do move quick, like you're signing a lease a day and things. Mm -hmm. At that point, did y'all have full jurisdiction as long as you stayed in the sandbox to keep leasing and you weren't having to get all these approvals? You know, we had kind of set parameters and yeah. we'd said, you know, all right, if we can buy within this range in this area, mm -hmm. you know, we're all good with it. And so that's sort of what we did. And we kind of had a budget, you know, set for periodically to, to purchase leases. And we had goals in terms of what we wanted to buy. I think we started out wanting to buy like around 25,000 acres and, you know, opportunities just kept coming. Yep. And so we uh, kept buying and, but yeah, they gave it, they gave us more latitude as we sort of earned our credibility with them. Before we get into Double Eagle 3, maybe just talking a little bit more about the Permian, 
why did y'all choose the Midland over the Delaware? Was there a reason? And then can you speak to maybe the difference as you see it between the two? Yeah, so we've done a lot of work in the Delaware over the years. And, you know, we have leased a lot out there. We've participated out there. We've been involved in a lot of Delaware deals. Um, I think specific to Double Eagle 2 and now Double Eagle 3 that we're, we're running, the Midland just presented the specific opportunity at that time. We thought that we could get something put together there. Um, I think that sort of the inherent advantage that the Midland Basin has over the Delaware is that it's sort of closer to civilization. Yeah, It's easier to get your oil and gas out. Um, it's easier to get services, that sort of thing. It's also shallower. The basin is a little bit. It's a little more benign geologically. There isn't as much variability across the basin. It is oilier yep. on the whole. It produces less water on the whole. And so it has its definite advantages, you know, just operationally. There are parts of the Delaware, though, that are better than anything ever. But they're they're smaller areas. But I would say that operationally for us, going in as an operator, the Midland is easier to operate in. Yep. Less difficult drilling is the biggest thing. And so, you know, as a new operator, especially it, in during W2, the Midland was more conducive to what we were capable of accomplishing. When you said that in Double Eagle 2, y'all had put together 70,000 acres, just paint a picture. Is that 100 leases? How many trans? Is that thousands of transactions? Like, what does it take to put together 70,000 acres in the Midland Basin? Um, well, I think that that business had, it had several thousand, we owned several thousand leases. So yep. it was, it was thousands of transactions. Okay. Um, you know, and that's kind of the magic, right? I mean, yep. that's, that's why we are, we have uh, been good and that's why we have had success is that we're good at figuring out how to accomplish and manage buying leases like that. For sure. And um, so we're good enough to, you know, all right, we know what the geology is more or less. We know where we want to be. And okay, now that we know where we want to be, we have the capability of actually going and buying in that specific area. When you're buying thousands of leases, you, you often hear a lot of people talk about like curing title after you buy something or I'm trying to figure out how to ask a question, like how much do you invest to where you're still buying a lease going like there's still things we got to do to get this thing right? And I'm assuming it's a learning curve over the way, but you're almost confident, like we'll get to where we need to get to, but we're comfortable closing now, but there's some stuff we have to do. I'm trying to figure out how I'm asking the question, but does that happen often? Yeah, that makes sense. So I think that that's a big part of our process. Yeah. Our ability to to do the title work and do the curative and and fix things. A lot of leases that are available in the areas that are good are leases that have hair on them mm-hmm. or areas that have problems, areas that are difficult to assemble. We've found ways to approach the land side of the business that allow us to be more efficient and effective at fixing those issues. Yep. But then also in the horizontal context, you have to actually, you, if you buy little scattered pieces of land or checkerboarded pieces of land, you have to actually go work deals with the offsetting operators in order to make them horizontally drillable. And we've gotten to be really effective at doing those acreage swaps and, you know, getting the box put together, getting the horizontal lanes put together. And, you know, that's been part of the reason that we've had success in the middle basin is that, you know, we've been really good and focused on doing that. But we've developed sort of internal sort of proprietary land system we've developed that allows us to manage all these different leases, know what the issues are, know what we need to do to fix them. And then sort of deploy our people who are, we have one of the best teams around yep. and now one of the most experienced teams specific to the Midland Basin around in resolving these issues that recur in the Permian. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's just a big part of it. That's what we're good at. And that's part of the value add. Right. And when you're drilling a horizontal well, basically you can drill as far as your lease holds and then the well has to stop if you don't own any more lease. Right. You can't, you can't drill through somebody else's lease. Correct. And so what's like the minimum amount of acreage that needs to be put together contiguous to drill a well, or is it more the shape of it that matters? It's so you really, you know, ideally you want to be able to drill two miles horizontally. Like if you have an 80 acre parcel that situates itself two miles long, you can drill that, but that's not going to be the most efficient or effective thing to do economically or from a resource recovery standpoint, what you really need and what we figured out, and you know, we can talk about double eagle three, but what what the industry has figured out is that you really need big blocks so that you can drill multiple wells at the same time and you can kind of go and sort of mow the lawn, so to speak. You drill one horizontal well and then you drill another one right next to it, and then you drill 40 more right next to that one. Yep. And you you complete them all a lot of them at the same time. Because you know, when you drill one well by itself, 
that one well will affect the three or four, eight drilling locations that are around it. Right. And so you have to be conscious, you know, technically with respect to how you complete that one well right. in order to make sure that you're not diminishing the value of the rest of them. Well, let's get into Double Eagle 3 then. Yeah. So you've sold Double Eagle 2. What's going on in Double Eagle 3? Yeah, so we sold we sold Double Eagle 2, you know, for $2.8 billion. And um, it was a amazing deal. And, yeah. you know, it, it was one that there was a big change for us and a big, big deal for us. And, you know, obviously gave us a lot of more credibility with the investor world and also just in the industry. And we had successfully achieved a good operating company too and proven that we can operate. And so we decided to go, you know, we thought that there was more opportunity in the Midland Basin and we decided to go out sort of right on the heels of that sale and go ahead and start another one because we had a lot of momentum. Yep. And I think that we'd done well enough to where there was maybe the impulse to just say, well, let's just kind of relax. Yeah. But what we found over time is just that opportunities don't really give you the time to relax. If, yeah. it, if an opportunity is there, you have to go get it. Yeah. And so that's what we did. And we have a young team. Nobody was ready to retire. We just went right back to it. We went to Apollo and we said, all right, we think we can do it again. And they said, all right, let's do it. The benefit this time is that we had, the industry had progressed a lot. We knew exactly which areas we wanted to be in. By this time, several thousand horizontal wells have been drilled in the middle of the basin. And so there'd been a lot of geologic delineation. Um, there'd also been a lot of operational delineation. People knew how to drill wells. Again, back to what I was talking about, we all realized we needed to have these big blocks. And so that's what we were focused on. We want to be in this certain part of the Midland Basin, um, and we want to have good developable blocks that we're going to be able to drill efficiently. We went out, got to work on it, <laughs> and um, you know that was uh, April, May, you know, into the fall of 2017 when we were starting that business. Same team of people who had, you know, were very talented to start with, but now had gained a lot of experience. You know, we set the business up. We we learned from what the mistakes we had made. Double Eagle Two developed different things. You know, we got really good on the back office side of things. We decided, all right, we're going to run this one like a public company, even if we're not public. You know, we're going to be able to um, close our books quickly at the end of each month. We're going to be able to, you know, do all the reporting that we need to do. We're going to have good information. So that's what we uh, that's what we've done. And you know, now fast forward three years, we have ninety six thousand acres oh, again in the Midland. And we're running six rigs out there right now. So we're, we are, we have a full scale, um, major development, uh, program going on. And to put that in perspective, based on like the technology of today, how many wells could be drilled on that 96,000 acres and like how much potential oil could y'all get if you drilled the entire thing and so held it for? I think that, you know, we have several thousand locations. I guess it depends on how you want to, how you want to look at them, but it's over 3,000 locations. And, you know, each of those locations may make 500,000 to a million barrels of oil. Yep. So it's a lot, you know, but you're also talking about a lot of time and capital in order to develop them. So it's not like you can drill them all at once, right? Yeah. You know, each rig drills maybe two wells a month, okay. horizontal wells a month. So those six rigs, we drill about 12 wells per month, horizontal wells per month. So that's kind of the the program that we're on. And as soon as a well's done... It just, the rig moves to the next location. Yeah, in fact, it, it doesn't even really move. It just sort of creeps over. Yep. And, um, you know, it drills one here and then it'll creep over 300 feet and drill another one. And so you typically drill, we're typically drilling eight to 16 wells per pad. Wow. And then we come back in and frack them all at the same time. So you you drill them all, get them all placed, then frack them at the same time. And mm -hmm. do they all start producing the same like day? Or Yes. Yep. So they, you, when you bring them all, you frack them all, you keep them all closed while you're fracking them. Yep. And then you open them back up. They flow back water for a while. Some of them start cutting oil right away. Some of them take a month to start cutting oil. And then that the water comes down, the oil comes up. And then, you know, within a, a couple of months, you kind of get to your peak rate. Do you all hedge your oil? And is that a like a mandated decision from Apollo or something that you all just have the luxury of deciding if you want to do or not? We do hedge, and it is something that Apollo is very focused on. Yeah. John and I are probably bigger risk takers than than Apollo is, yeah. but and so we were resistant to the idea of hedging at first, uh, but they've you know convinced us it's the right thing to do, and I'm glad they did yeah. because you know this last spring and summer when we had the big downturn, our hedge position was great for us and really helped us out. Yeah, you 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 beat the negative thirty five dollar oil yeah. for yeah. a day yeah. deal. 
when when you hedge, uh, like you just said, you had these thousands of drilling locations. Do you put the hedge in before you drill the well, or do you have to put it in like as you're drilling it? We hedge based on our expected production. Got it. So it's you know we have forecasts with respect to what our production will be, you know, each month yep. for the next you know a couple of years, and we we hedge based on what we expect that production to be. So from 2009 to where we are today, y'all have gone from friends and family kind of lease flippers all over Texas and Louisiana to now one of the largest pure play like Permian operators out there in 10 years. Yep, that's right. It's kind of been an amazing ride, I would say. That's incredible. Yeah. And I've had the luxury of having somewhat of a front row seat to watching it happen. It's been one of the cool stories. How big is your team now? I think in total, we have about 160 employees um, and they're split pretty evenly between Fort Worth and Midland. We have um, sort of the main corporate office, I guess, is here in Fort Worth. And then we have field office in Midland. We have another corporate office in downtown Midland. All right. Let's pivot just a little bit to just kind of what's going on just in the industry. I know you're super involved in the industry and um, I think a lot of people that listen to it when they think of oil and gas, maybe all they think about is like gasoline going in their car. So let's just do a dive through the industry. Maybe just a loaded question, but like how do you see kind of where we are today in this kind of downturn versus downturns that you've been through? I'm assuming in 10 years, you've now been through three or four at least. What's different this time? This one seems way worse than any that we've ever seen before. I think that they're, aside from just the supply and demand dynamics that have caused prices to be low, there's also sort of this existential sort of overhang in the oil and gas industry now. People are fundamentally worried about whether the oil and gas industry is going to exist mm-hmm. in the future. And so the combination of those factors make it a very tough time in the industry. What gives like anybody a reason to think that it wouldn't exist? I think that people fundamentally don't understand the way that energy is delivered to them. Yeah. They don't understand the vast importance that that uh, petroleum products have in their lives. Yeah. They don't understand how much of their daily existence is predicated on energy being available to them. Yep. And they don't know how, they just don't know how big it is and how difficult it is to produce and deliver that energy. They, they walk in to their, you know, house and they flip the light switch on and they just totally take it for granted. Right. They don't recognize how much really goes into that. And so you can't just all of a sudden transition the whole world into renewable energy. Right. You just can't. You it's, can't make like plastics from wind. Right. No, or, you can't. Or rubbers or. You can't. No. And even even beyond that, you just can't, you know, the physical realities of the world that we live in, yeah. just physics and chemistry necessitate oil and gas and, and hydrocarbons generally. And so what I see is that we're going to need oil and gas for a really long time. Like demand's going to be there especially from the emerging economies, but whether or not people will want to invest in it, whether our industry becomes like tobacco and it's a, you know, uninvestable commodity that still there's a huge amount of demand for, that's possible. Um, but in any event, you know, we have to just, like we've always done, continue to be dynamic and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just continue to respond to the market conditions. And what I'm confident in, though, is that we produce a product that there is a huge need for and there will continue to be for a long time. And so we're just going to figure out how to continue to to move forward in the changing environment. But things are just, things are way different than they've ever been before. Yep. And you hear like capital's kind of frozen and you hear a lot, the acronym ESG and a lot of the big pensions and a lot of the big oil and gas allocators are no longer doing it unless companies meet like an ESG requirement. What does that even mean? So ESG um, stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Okay. And it's sort of an investment paradigm that indicates that investors and companies in general should be interested in things beyond just profit making. Right. They should be interested in their social impact and their environment, environmental impact in the world. And that movement started out with essentially pressure on public companies to add more diversity to their boards of directors and to their management. And so, you know, it, it was pushed that, you know, you need to have more women on your board, you need to have more, more minorities, underrepresented populations on your board. And I think most people were fine with that. You know, fundamentally, I believe that a corporation ought to be able to just pick the smartest people that they want to have involved in their company. And that they, you know, if that that person is of a certain race or gender or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like, you need to have the smartest people. And that's how John and I look at it is we don't care 
who you are, what you are. Yep. If you're smart, if you can help us, we'd love to have you part of the team. Yep. And I think that's the right approach. But those initiatives were pushed on people and corporations largely embraced them. And then at some point, um, the environmental movement kind of dovetailed into this. And um, it's the heat has turned up on this, you know, sort of insidiously, but dramatically mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. And so now big pension funds, big investment managers, all are very, very focused on it. Big banks and pretty much every one of those institutions that you go to their website on the internet, they have an ESG policy statement. And in many cases, those policy statements specifically uh, indicate that they are going to invest less or provide less capital to hydrocarbon producers. And that movement has severely affected the access to capital that we have. Yep. And so, you know, what are the impacts of that? They're pretty profound. All right. So with respect to our in- industry specifically, it means that, you know, if we have less access to capital, like our banks won't lend us as much money, we're going to run less rigs. Yep. That means that there are fewer jobs available um, in the industry. It means there are fewer jobs available in the state of Texas, Pennsylvania, New Mexico, Oklahoma, wherever hydrocarbons are produced, you know, that's, you know, there are fewer jobs in the field and offices, all that kind of thing. But also it affects steel workers. It affects everybody that we buy things from auto workers. You know, we're not buying so many pickup trucks. It, it has an impact on real people's jobs, right? It also has an impact on the amount of oil and gas that's produced in this country. I think, you know, that is fundamentally the goal of the ESG movement is for less oil and gas to be produced. What they fail to realize is though, that if we don't produce it here, it's not like it's not being produced. The demand is still there. Yep. You know, they, like India just increased their oil refining capacity by some like threefold. Like they know they're going to need more oil and they need a ton of it over there. Same thing in China, same thing in all these emerging economies. Yep. Really the demand in the United States is, has been pretty flat, but it's still there. So the amount of oil that's needed is not changing. The amount of oil that's being produced and, and burned is not changing. It's just instead of producing it here in the United States where it's safe, where it's secure, it's being produced in Russia. It's being produced in the Middle East. It's being, you know, we're, so we're basically just shifting our own production to places where, you know, do you think that they have, you know, strict environmental standards with respect to how they operate their wells in Russia? No. They absolutely do not. Yeah. Do you think that they are concerned about how much gas they're flaring or, you know, how much methane they're leaking in the environment? We pay a huge amount of attention to that. They don't do it over there. Do you think they care about their worker safety like yep. we do? Absolutely not. So we're basically shifting oil and gas production here in the United States that drives our economy here over to other countries. The other thing that it does is it effectively drives up the the cost of energy to consumers here in the United States. Yep. And um, there's a study done that showed very clearly that, back to Aubrey McClendon, the natural gas, the lower electricity costs that we have here, the lower cost of gasoline that we have here, saves the average American family for $2,500 a year. Wow. So you think about the number of families in this country, and it's a large number, yep. um, that have to choose between like, am I going to buy food, medicine, basic things, or am I going to pay my electric bill this month? And that's a that's a real thing for a lot of people. Yep. And we take away this sort of advantage that we have in this country from a cost of living standpoint, and we we burden American families with more costs, that hurts real people. Yep. And it hurts the people who can't who can afford it the least. It hurts them the most. And that that's a profound impact. So these people that are ESG investors, they think they're doing this great thing for the world. They're doing this these great moral and ethical, you know, these big moral and ethical efforts yep. are actually hurting people. And that's what, you know, the the indirect impacts of what they're doing are fairly massive. And the goal they're trying to accomplish, which is to reduce carbon emissions, they're not accomplishing anything. Because again, the production that we have in this country is just shifting from the United States over to, to other countries. Where the emissions are worse. Yeah, where the, they're not taking care of the environment. They're not taking care of people. It's a, it's, a, it's a very bad deal. Now, aside from those specific things and the impacts of ESG on our industry, there's also just a fundamental philosophical issue with ESG investing. It's like, you know, goes back to Milton Friedman, who said that, you know, corporations should only think about making money and that society is best served if their primary and only focus is making profits. 
so we're shifting away from that, right? And yep. so now we we said we want banks, we want Wall Street effectively to be the arbiter of what is moral and ethical in this country. Now, how does that make any sense, right? Yeah. It makes none. Yeah. I think that individuals ought to be able to make their own choices with respect to what they want to buy and how they want to conduct their lives. You know, if they have a certain ethic or moral that they want to pursue, then I think that's great. And I think by and large, people will make choices based on, you know, their own moral compass. But if we leave it up to these arbitrary standards that like the financial industry sets for us or even the government sets, that's that's a bad path to go down. And long term, if we let it to continue to permeate our corporations and our business world, it's going to hurt our standard of living. It's going to hurt our economy. It's going to be a big headwind to economic growth. And ultimately, it's going to hurt people. And that's what I, I think that's what's poorly understood about that about that move, ESG movement. It's it's a very very bad thing on a number of levels. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel that we that we kind of get past it? Like, is it returns coming back into the industry that people kind of bypass the CSG thing and say, "All right, we're back in"? Or like, how do we get past all this? I think that if if our industry can prove that it can make returns developing resource plays, that people will return to investing in it. But I think that long term. It's a problem. It's going to be a headwind. And it's something we've got to talk about as an industry. We have to find a way to get people to not take for granted flipping the white switch, that they understand how important it is. We just have to communicate it with people. And what I've found is that if, if you just lay it out to people and, and help them understand that when we look at renewable energy, you know, we've subsidized it billions and billions of dollars now for decades. And renewable energy produces 4% of the energy that we use in this country. That's uh-huh. it. I mean, everything else comes from coal, natural gas, nuclear, petroleum. You know, it's it's so hard to get that stuff to work because it's just so non-concentrated. Right. It's just very, very difficult to get the quantum of energy that we need from it. If we get people to understand those kinds of things, if we get people to understand that 80% of the products that they use every day are made from petroleum products, yep. like the clothes we're wearing, you know, our computers, our phones, our er- everything that we have. Um, is made from petroleum. Everything is delivered using the energy that we, you know, that we derive from from hydrocarbons. If we get people to understand how important it is to their lives and what the true impact is of the sort of policy decisions we're making, I think that people will come around to it. But that's that's a long path, and our industry um, has done a very poor job up to this point of communicating with people because we sort of take it for granted. We understand how important it is. We expect everyone else does too, but. That's just not a, a natural thing for people to know, especially people on the coast who don't see it every day and and don't understand, you know, where it comes from. So these people are getting in their cars, sitting in their chairs, pulling up to their computers, talking on their phones and microphones, this whole ESG movement, and like every step of the way they're touching or using something that's petroleum based to exactly. make their their statement. Exactly. Okay. So if this continues. Capital doesn't come in. Rigs keep uh, rigs are at like an all time low in the last ten years. Uh, our supply of oil goes down dramatically. That's going to push pressure on prices to go up, which again gets back to your comment about American standard of living and the money that they put. I guess you can make an argument that's a good thing that oil prices go up, um, but that's probably unsustainable. Yeah, I mean, it, it would short term it would be a good thing for us, yeah. you know, if if oil prices go up. Really, what we need is energy price stability. Yeah. Right. I think, you know, that's what our industry wants. And that's what's best for the economy is if it's slightly higher in a more sustainable place than it is now, yeah. but that it kind of stays there. And yeah. that's that's the best thing. But what we're setting up ourselves up for right now is just a massive uh, correction to this down. I mean, it's like supplies are coming off tremendously. Yep. We're not drilling enough wells. We're not We're not maintaining the supply. And so, you know, I, right now we're we're thinking a lot about what does post-COVID demand look like? Mm-hmm. When do people start flying on airplanes again? Um, when does economic activity generally return to levels that it was before the the pandemic? And, um, you know, that's the big question. And, and when if that occurs quickly, our industry is not going to be in a position to respond rapidly. And so you could see some pretty massive imbalances in the market and you could see prices spike. A price spike is bad for our industry long term. Yep. I mean, it, it's not good. It it uh, it's disruptive for the ESG folks. Maybe that's what they want because that's going to drive you know more uh, adoption of renewables and that sort of thing in the short term. But again, you're never going to in the long term with the technology we have today. You're never going to get to a place where 
those can really truly fill the gap. So really what you're looking at is just a, a, a place where the consumer, the family, uh, the households are going to bear the brunt of this spike and this, you know, bad high prices that are, again, it's just, it's going to hurt people. And if it spikes and America can't catch up quick enough to start delivering the supply that we should be delivering, we're basically just now back to kind of our adversaries buying oil from Saudi Arabia, Russia, that whole. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're going to see. Iran bring supply back on Libya. Russia is going to increase its supply. I don't know how much spare capacity Saudi Arabia has, but they'll bring that back on. I mean, that's where that's where the hole is going to be filled. And even those folks, it'll take them a while to get it back on. Do you have any comments on just kind of our relationship with those countries right now? Like, are we in good standing with them or are things rocky? It seems like um, President Trump did a good job in the Middle East. Yeah. You know, I think that um, our relationship with Saudi Arabia is complicated, but good. Yeah. Um, you know, I think he's really stabilized things over there. Which is counter to what everybody said he was going to do. They said he was going to start all these wars. Yeah, he's kept him kept us out of out of them, which I'm fully in favor of. You know, and I, I don't pretend to understand you know international diplomacy or whatever, but it seems like it's pretty stable over there right now. So we'll see what you know what happens in the future. Real quick on uh, just supply again, just to paint a picture. You know, people hear about these horizontal wells and they they come online and they're just gushing oil, but that falls off pretty dramatically. Can you just paint a picture that? If we don't keep drilling, it's not like we're drilling wells that are producing, call it 100,000 barrels a day, and they're doing that for the next 10 years. They're doing that for the first couple of months, and then it's dropping significantly. Yeah, I mean, the, the shale wells decline by over half in the first year. Yep. So, you know, if well comes in at 1,000 barrels a day, it'll be 500 barrels or less by the first year that it comes on. So in the shale context, you have to keep drilling in order to keep that production up. Now, you're able to make returns, even though the decline is is what it is. People think that's really bad. You know, obviously you'd rather them stay flat forever, but you can still make returns and we calculate those declines as we calculate the returns that we make. But globally, when you kind of look at all the old base production, all the big con- conventional fields, the global oil supply just naturally declines by maybe 4% a year. Okay. So if we have 100 million barrels of international production um, each year with that 4% decline, we have to find 4 million new barrels of oil to replace that existing production. And so even if demand permanently decreases by a few million barrels a day, which would be a pretty massive de- decrease, historically speaking, like say electric vehicles are adopted and they offset three or 4 million barrels a day. Well, that's only one year of, of natural decline. Right. So it, it there's still this big need to continue to find more energy in the world. And have we found all the energy in the world? Or do you think there's like, there's still a lot to I think we found the easy energy, yeah. um, you know, it, what they found is that uh, the supply of oil is directly related to the price of oil. So there's certain amounts of supply available at each price level. Right. And if you ever to see $100 oil again, you'd see quite a lot of new supply come on, but that $100 supply isn't economic at 80. Right. And so there are places you can go to get it, but it's just, it becomes more and more expensive. I don't know the exact statistic, but it's like uh, when you drill a well based on current technology, only like 8% of the oil comes out of the ground. And so 92% is left in. Is there anything in the horizon, kind of like the shale revolution, this new technology that might be coming out to get another 8% out of the ground? Or Yeah. And again, it just goes back to the economics, right? right. I mean, you can get it out. You can go do a water flood or in some place they do steam floods. There are all these different ways to get more of it out. Yeah. It's just a matter of what does it cost to get that barrel out of the ground. Yeah. And so, you know, if you get $100 oil, you're going to get a lot of that remaining reserve recovered. But it it becomes incrementally more and more expensive, you know, the more and more you try to get it out. All right. So there it's looking, we don't have an answer yet, but it's looking like there's probably going to be an administration change in Washington in January. What are your kind of thoughts on how that'll impact the industry? You know, it'll be interesting to watch, and, yeah. and we definitely have a close eye on it. You know, my best bet is that there's sort of legislative gridlock one way or another, even if uh, we'll see how the Georgia races go. But even if the Democrats win both of those seats, I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of big legislative initiatives. Yep. So then we start to look at the regulatory side of things. You know, people are very focused on, you know, what is a Biden administration potentially going to do to federal lands? And so I think that the the operators that have federal leases probably are and probably should be concerned. 
um, you know, they've said that they're going to basically ban fracking on federal lands or that they're going to stop new leases of federal lands. So, you know, that'll be damaging and destructive to the, to the industry. We, we do not have any federal leases. We're all on private lands. And so we think that it'll be harder for them to affect us as much. Right. There'll be certain things that regulations that come down with respect to methane emissions and flaring. And we think that those types of things could start to affect us, but we're ahead of that anyway. And have sort of been trying to be responsible with respect to, you know, those issues anyway. And so I, I don't think that it'll change really our course of business that much. Um, but those operators that are exposed to the federal side of things could have some things that they have to deal with. How long does it, per- once you get a permit to drill an oil and gas well, how long is it good for? In the state it- of Texas, two years. Okay. Um, and I may be wrong about that. It may just be a year. But anyway, in on federal lands, it's a little longer. And so a lot of the the operators of federal lands have filed a bunch of permits. That's what I was going to ask, yeah. And so they're they're ahead of it. And also, you know, there's a lot of activity like in southeast New Mexico where there are a lot of federal lands and there's some good resource. People have been drilling a lot to try to sort of consume that inventory before they look at other things. But um, I think practically speaking, you know, it'll be a fight. And I think most of the folks that are on uh, have the federal exposure will be able to continue to operate. You know, it's just going to be a headwind. It's going to be a difficulty added cost. It'll slow down their development plans, you know, those sorts of things. And ultimately, again, it's just going to cost jobs here in the country. It's just going to raise our energy costs. It's not going to reduce the amount of oil that is consumed in the world. Right. It's, it's just shifting it elsewhere. Right. It's just hurting our, it's, we're cutting off our nose to spite our face is what we're doing. Why is the Permian Basin the most prolific basin in the country? It's just, it, it's just all geology. Yep. It's just the resource. It's just, okay. it's the, the best resource that we have in this country. It may be the best resource in the world. It is the, of all the basins in North America, you can extract a barrel of oil economically at a lower price than you can anywhere else. That's yep. the bottom line. And there's multiple layers of it and benches and. Yeah. They, you know, under one acre of land, there could be as many as eight different, you know, landing zones that you, wow. you know, you can put a horizontal well in. Um, it's just a massively prolific, you know, resource and there's just a lot of oil there. And then uh, just a question on just valuation. How are things valued maybe when you sold to Parsley versus on this next sale? Will people value your assets differently now? There has been a, a definite shift in that. You know, it used to be um, at that time and before people were focused on dollars per acre. Let's yep. say this acre is worth $40,000 an acre or whatever. Now there's a lot more focus on sort of valuing oil and gas businesses like other businesses are valued and yeah. saying, all right, what is your EBITDA multiple? What is your free cash flow multiple? Those sorts of things. And so, you know, if we were to sell Double Eagle 3 at some point in the future, it would probably be valued off of uh, our EBITDA, a multiple of our EBITDA. You had the opportunity to host President Trump at y'all's, uh, one of y'all's wells in Midland. Um, and w- after we got a chance to talk about it, you said it was one of the coolest experiences. Can you just share maybe a minute or two of what it was like to host the president? And I don't know what it meant to you. Yeah, it was it was a something I'll obviously never forget. It was a, a really incredible experience. I think, um, you know, we got to meet him and talk to him, which was, you know, aside from just the fact that it's kind of awe-inspiring to meet the president of the United States, it's also just interesting to interact with a person who's done what he's done. Yeah. And, you know, he's a just an interesting person. Yeah. And so watching how he conducts himself and hearing the things he says and sort of high process information and that was interesting to me. Yeah. Then seeing like the way that he has to travel and move around and the massive just number of people and cars and security and all the stuff that goes into him moving around is just staggering. Yeah. And uh amazing. Yeah. But it was a it was a really, really Did he say anything that stood out to you? Like anything you a quote or a comment that you won't forget? Um, yeah, I introduced him. It started out he was just gonna visit the rig and like have a photo op like looking at stuff and, you know, uh pointing at things on the rig and they're gonna show the pictures of it. And it turned into he decided he wanted to actually deliver a speech on the rig. So they that was a huge deal in and of itself. Like they had to so, you know, our rig is out in the middle of the desert, right? right. And um, they they were concerned about sniper sight lines. And so they brought in trailers and frack tanks and all this stuff and built a perimeter around the location so that to like 
block it off from snipers. Wow. And they had their own snipers posted up in different high points and everything to protect him. Anyway, so he's going to give this speech, and um, I, I was going to introduce him. I did introduce him, and I was standing backstage with him. He, first of all, is a really, like when he's off stage, when he's not, when the cameras aren't on, he's a much quieter and more normal person. Yeah. Right? And he has a little bit of a caricature that he has to play yeah. when he's up there. Um, and so he's he's really kind of nice to talk to. So he uh, he went in, and uh, he had a, we had a tent set up and he was outside the tent talking to a reporter and I was standing back there just waiting and he walked in and out from outside the tent to inside of it. And they set this big, like full length mirror down in front of him so he could look at himself before he went out. And he looked at himself. He's kind of looking at it and uh, he kind of messed with his hair and he said, all right, give me the spray. <laughs> and they came in and hit him with hairspray, like just a ton of it. But, oh, um, but then we were sitting there and he kind of like, um, I was standing right next to him. You know, they introduced me and they called me up and he like put his hand on my shoulder and he said, all right, buddy, let's go out there and get a, give a good speech. Oh, I love it. Man. So I really like that. But, um, you know, I, I liked him personally and um, I kind of wish everyone could get to know him that way. I think a lot of people are turned off by the bluster. Yep. I think a lot of people like that. Yep. Um, and so he plays it up. But if, if um, sort of the rest of us could get to know him and be around him uh, the way that we were, see how smart he is and, you know, nice he is to people. Yeah. Um, I think he would have been a much more popular president and yeah. his election would have had a different outcome. But, but anyway, it, it was a fantastic experience and That's one so that cool. I can't maybe never get the chance to have again, but some, definitely something I'll never forget. All right, man. I really appreciate you coming and chatting with me today. This, yeah. was, this was awesome. You're clearly a huge leader in the industry and uh, there's better days ahead. Yeah, I hope so. And thanks a lot, Chris. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Hey, everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.